Good morning, and let's turn now to the second book of the Bible again, Exodus. Right after Genesis, you come to Exodus. And in the Pew Bible, we begin reading on page 48. Actually, you're going to uh, start with verse 2 and just read through verse 9 for our section today. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord God, we praise you that you unveil yourself in this passage, this revelation to Moses. You unveil who you are as Yahweh. And we pray, Lord, that you would unveil yourself to us, that we will have shown into our hearts something more of the glory of God to refresh us and encourage us, to comfort us, to bring forth worship and praise and glad obedience, to bring forth from our hearts even more love, glad love for others. Lord, set us free as we come to know you even more. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen. I thought it would be good for us to review a little bit where we've uh, been one day, as you recall, an Egyptian was beating uh, an Israelite, and Moses, an Israelite himself, who had been smuggled into Pharaoh's household, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, was walking around checking things out. He saw the beating, and he saved the Israelite's life by killing the Egyptian. All right? Pharaoh found out what happened. And he was then going to kill the turncoat, Moses. But Moses escaped. He became a refugee in the land of Midian. And he became a lowly shepherd. Royalty was now digging ditches, as it were. 
And so while shepherding one day, Yahweh, the God of Moses' ancestors, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to Moses in a bush that was full of flames, but the flames wouldn't touch the bush somehow. Yahweh commissioned Moses, the outcast, to go back and to lead, to confront Pharaoh and lead Israel out of Egypt. Yahweh said that Pharaoh will refuse, no surprise there. But finally, he will let Israel go after Yahweh has struck Egypt with wonders. Not only will he let Israel go, but Israel will be given uh, be richly adorned with jewels and valuables and clothes by the Egyptians. He's basically saying, though you're slaves and you're helpless in your oppression, after I struck them down, it'll be like war. You win and you plunder the Egyptians. That's what's going to happen. Of course, Moses is not happy about this arrangement. He's not happy about going back. He doesn't think the Israelites will even listen to him, much less the Egyptians. But after God shows Moses a couple of miracles that God will do in front of the Israelites, after he supplies Moses with Aaron, his brother, for a spokesman, Moses takes the job. So Aaron meets him in the wilderness. They go back together. They tell the Israelite elders what has happened. The elders believe their report, and immediately they begin worshiping Yahweh. So far, so good. Then we get to chapter 5, the chapter right before the one we read. The presentation to Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh is not so happy about this. Things don't go well at all. Not only does he not let them go, which God said that will be the case. He will not let you go. But he made things much worse for the Israelites in the process. To make bricks, you know, it's necessary to uh, fold straw in the bricks. Uh, It not only helps the bricks dry more quickly, but it acts like rebar does in cement. It holds the bricks together. And without it, bricks just crumble. They're worthless. They're no good. So, up to this point, the Egyptians would supply the straw for the Israelites to make the bricks. Now, Pharaoh says, you go and gather your own straw, but you have the same quota to keep of bricks. It would be like a chef on the Louisiana coast suddenly being told, from now on, we're not bringing the fish. You have to go out and catch it and still be the cook, right? Of course, he would quit, but they couldn't quit. They were slaves. It was an impossible situation. Their terrible conditions became even worse. They were working beyond their strength. It couldn't be done, and yet no matter how much the Israelite foreman complained to Pharaoh, he would not relent. The Israelites were just crumbling under the load. So the foremen come out from Pharaoh, where Moses and Aaron are waiting for them, and basically they say to him, to them, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Now, you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh, and you've basically put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is great. This is a great deliverance. You can just hear the sarcasm and bitterness in their voice. Uh, That's what happens at the end of chapter 5. And Moses, of course, immediately turns to to Yahweh and says, Why have you done this evil to your people? 
What are you doing, basically, he's saying to Yahweh there at the end of chapter 5. Why did you even send me? Because ever since I spoke to Pharaoh, all that's happened, he's done evil to these people. I don't see anything that looks like deliverance down here. That gets us to verse 1 here in chapter 6, where God says, basically, okay, now, now that the situation is set, now that it looks as bad as it can look, right? Now, you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. His great strength is turned against you, but that strength is going to act for you. He says, with a strong hand, he will send you out. This strong hand against you is going to now drive you out. That's the setting for this declaration that we read in verses 2 through 8. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Because it is one of the great revelations of God about himself. Who he is, it's one of the great definitions of who he is, who Yahweh is, what this name Yahweh means. You'll notice he begins in verse 2 saying, I am the Lord. And then he has these words, he just speaks straight to Moses. And then in verse 6, he's giving Moses the message that he's to say to the Israelites that goes through verse 8. And notice, he begins, I am the Lord. He ends, I am the Lord. And so what we're going to see is that everything in between there, everything sandwiched between I am the Lord, defines the name of God. It's like an exposition of that name. This, because I am Yahweh, this is what I'm going to do. I will act in accord with my name. And this is what you're to announce to the Israelites. So first, I want us to look at God's faithfulness as it is expressed in this passage. He says that I appeared to Abraham, Isaac. I established my covenant with them. I've heard the groaning and I've remembered my covenant and I will bring them out. See, this is a statement of his faithfulness. I am who I am is the name he gave in chapter 3. Basically, that's the name Yahweh. That means I'm constantly the same. I'm true to my word. I fulfill my promises. I know when you're suffering. I take full uh, bearing with your suffering and I will deliver you from my suffering because I remember my promise. I never forget my promise. That's what he communicates in his discussion, his words to Moses, even before he gets to the speech that he's going to send Moses to say to the uh, Israelites. And so, God, we find not only here, but of course throughout Scripture, he operates by promise all the time. He operates by promise. We're told in the opening verses of Second Peter that we partake of God. That is, we fellowship with God. We commune with God. We take on his character through promises. And there's no other way to do it. If you don't know God by promise, you don't know God. Okay? Because he makes himself known as the God who abundantly enriches us. And that's the only God there is. He's only known as the promise God. 
His promises are how we draw him near. We love the term love handles, right? Hey, babe, I'm not overweight. These are my love handles, right? <clears throat> well, I'm not, I'm not trying to demean this uh, God with this term, but really his promises are the handles or the means by which we know his love. God has given us those promises by which we might taste his love and believe his love. His love is piled high in his promises. He loves us by promise. We meet him in promise. His love is overflowing and gushing out in his many promises. And there's no way to enjoy him except through promise. To know him as the faithful God of promise. So we live by promise, we have comfort by promise, we have joy by promise, we have peace, shalom by promise, we have encouragement by promise, we have energy and commitment and glad obedience only by promise. We have hope by promise. Everything we receive from God comes by promise. The gospel is itself one huge promise of what God has done through his son for sinners. What he will do for you if you trust Christ. It is one giant promise that has gone out to the whole world. He is saying in all of this, I am faithful. I am Yahweh. Come and put yourself in the hands of my faithfulness. Put yourself in the hands of my promises. And know me to be the faithful God. The word we use in worship, amen. Sometimes we sing it like at the end of uh, the doxology. Sometimes we say it at the end of uh, a a blessing or maybe even the end of a hymn. We'll say, and God's people said, amen. And we've said This is the same as saying, it's not the end, right? The end. It's not that. It's the way we say, yes. It's the way we say, absolutely. Or we say, this is true. This is certain. Basically, you know what we're saying in amen? God is faithful. God is faithful. Sing a hymn, holy, holy, holy at the end. God is faithful. He is that God. He is always that God. He is, I am who I am. We are saying, we believe him. We trust him. We rejoice in him. We hope in him. He is the faithful one. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises are now yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It's better than ever, right? In the new covenant. All the promises have been guaranteed in Christ. They've been made absolutely good in Christ. All the promises are sealed in the blood of Christ. The earnest commitment to do us good in Christ teaches us his earnest commitment to do us good in every promise. It's the same God who gives Christ, who gives these promises. Now all the promises are a part of his gift in Christ. They are as sure as the gift of Christ. They're made, they're yes and amen in Christ. And as we've been saying in the past weeks, 
We have to rid ourselves of our idols, our false gods, our gods that abandon us, our gods that don't take notice of our suffering, our gods that don't have the deepest compassion for our suffering, our gods that will never do anything about what we fear, what we go through, what, uh, what our disappointment is. Brothers and sisters, we don't worship those gods. We worship Yahweh. The faithful God, the promising God. There is no other God. You have a God who attends you. You have a God who is the ever-promising God. The always promise-keeping God. So, in the first place then, we have the faithfulness of God. Just in the words that God is speaking there to Moses. Then we get to the words that he is, uh, gives Moses to say to the children of Israel. Beginning in verse 6. And again, he begins with I am Yahweh. He ends with I am Yahweh. In the middle are seven I wills. Okay? Seven I wills. Three in first verse, two in the second, two in the third. And they center around these three things. The first three in verse uh, 6 center around rescue. I will rescue. The next two revolve around relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. And the last two revolve around the inheritance. I will bring you into your possession. So, the three parts of this revelation of who I am, the filling out of I am, the explanation or exposition of my name, the manifestation of my name is... I will deliver, I will rescue, I will be your God, I will give you an inheritance. Rescue, relationship, inheritance. So we've looked at his faithfulness. Let's look now at his saving power or his rescue or his deliverance. Now, we'll start back up in verse 3 because he says something that's a little puzzling here. And... In fact, this verse has been given reason for people to think two different uh, traditions arose who didn't know what the other one was saying, uh, and, and yet there's a much better explanation for this. And it's this. He says, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the problem is the narrator in Genesis does use the word Yahweh repeatedly. Okay, now, you might say, all right, well, the narrator's using the name, but they didn't know the name, but they address him. Hagar addresses him as Yahweh. Uh, Abraham addresses him as Yahweh. They knew the name, okay? So what, what could he mean by this? They didn't, uh, I did not make myself known to them. Well, it's an indication that they knew the name, but they didn't know the full significance of the name. And that all the more means that chapter 6 is very important because now the significance of the name is being unfolded before us. That's how important this passage is. He's saying up to this point, but now the significance of this name is going to be made known. The full meaning of this name. And it centers around this. They didn't know the saving power of God. They didn't know that. 
They, you Israelites, they are going to know me in a whole new way by the saving power that they see when I deliver them out of Egypt. So his act of salvation is the revelation of who he is, you see. And so God's character as a saving God is now to be fully revealed. They will come to know in this deliverance. They will come to know God in a way the patriarchs did not. And this uh, makes me think of Ephesians 1, a fascinating passage where... Uh, Paul is praying and he is saying, one one of his uh, aspects of his prayer is this, that I pray that you would uh, know the Lord God, that you would uh, be, he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So then you might think, okay, well, what's that going to be? Know that I'm eternal, know that I'm this, know that these may be abstract ideas about God. But what follows is God's great salvation for the Ephesians. So I pray that you would come to know this God. And here are the things I want you to know. So that you would know the hope that he's called you to. That's inheritance, right? That you would know the hope he's called you to, to the riches of his inheritance, and that you would know the immeasurable power that is yours in Christ Jesus. So the knowledge of God is is given to us couched in his very salvation of his people. Like, he wants you to know him almost exclusively. Of course, you know him as the God of creation. You know him as the God of history. But he wants you to know he's the God of salvation. He's the God who acts for you, who delivers you, who saves you. And so it seems almost too self-focused. You know, I want you to know God. Well, here's what God's going to do for you. It's like Bette Midler's great line. You know, uh, um, I I don't want to talk about myself anymore. What do you think about me? You know, (laughs) I don't want to talk about me. Let me talk. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? I believe that's how it went. And so it kind of seems like that. I'm going to focus you on God. And now as I focus you on God, I want you to know the hope that he calls you to, the inheritance he has given you, the great power that is yours. It's amazing how this God is a God who pushes out to give himself away and benefit others. And that's how he wants you to know him, as the God who benefits others, who will benefit you if you entrust your life to him and find him the faithful God. So this follows from faithfulness, right, that we saw, that he is the saving God, the delivering God. So in the New Testament, as as uh, Yahweh, uh, there's the exposition of his name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. Then the exposition of his name, Jesus, in the New Testament. It underscores that, right? Jesus is the explanation of Yahweh. He shows that he's the God who not only delivers his people, but he delivers them at the cost of his own blood. So this further uh, revelation of the delivering God, the rescuing God who even comes and sheds his blood for us. And the word redeem there in verse 6 is that 
a famous word. It's the, the verb form is Gael, but you may know it in the noun form. Goel, the redeemer, kinsman. 20 times in Ruth, talking about Boaz being the redeemer, kinsman for Ruth, for, Ruth, for instance. And so God makes him his, himself our redeemer, kinsman. Like he takes us in close association with himself and he identifies with us. He takes on the obligations that we have as, as though a near relative. And he takes it as his duty to redeem and deliver his kin from difficulty or danger. So if a, a, a relative was sold into slavery, the redeemer kinsman would redeem him back out of slavery. Or also if one had been killed by someone, the redeemer it becomes the redeemer avenger. The redeemer avenger, avenging the blood. And many think this is what, how Yahweh is acting at this point. Both as the one who will redeem them out of slavery back to be in fellowship with him. But also the blood avenger who is going to avenge and release his family by destroying their enemy. The Lord knows and possesses his people, as one has said, and he's ready to pay whatever price is needed in order to implement his next of kin right to redeem them and take upon himself all their needs as if his own. And think in Christ Jesus how this is turned around. It's not the blood of the Egyptians that's being spilled to redeem his people. He comes to spill his own blood to redeem his people. The Redeemer Avenger now has turned his wrath upon himself, even though we were the ones that should just get the punishment. We're in that sense in the place of Egypt. We're the ones who have done evil it is our hearts. All have sinned before God. And he comes to redeem us at the cost of his own blood. This is the one who is faithful. <laughs> this, is the, this is Yahweh. He is the one who redeems his people. By taking on our own sinfulness. So he's the faithful God. He's the redeeming God. And then we see he's the relational God in this passage. It says literally, I am, I will, uh, it says in verse 10, I will take you to be my people. It, it, it reads, I will take you to myself. I will take you to me to be my people. And later in chapter 19 at Mount Sinai, he's talking in the past. He's ta he says, how I brought you out to myself. It's for me that I redeem you. Isn't that amazing? God redeems you for himself. Because he wants you. He loves you. And, and this language is marriage language. It's adoption language in the Old Testament. And, and the surrounding culture. That I'm taking you to be my own. So... And that's the whole point of salvation. It's not just safety in some kind of abstract way from punishment and a whole lot of good things. It's that we get to have God. Okay? We get to be restored to God. He, he, he redeems us for himself. And that's, that follows from the idea of Goel, doesn't it? It's his redeemer kinsman. And he's redeeming us so that he can have us for himself.
And of course, in Christ, this is intensified as he takes on our flesh, as he dwells with us in our flesh, becomes one with us in this regard. And Hebrews talks about how he identifies with all of our suffering and all of our temptations. That's how intimate he is with us. So he can be a perfect Redeemer, How intimate, how involved. It says there in Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And that means all of you ladies too, of course. He's not ashamed to call all of you his brethren. How can that be? How can that be? Especially when there have been times that I've been ashamed of belonging to him. 1 John 3 then, you know, with that kind of language, how great a love is it that we're called the children of God. See, he is our God. We are his people. And so John can say in 1 John, we proclaim to you this good news, this one who has come so that you can have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. The whole thing is relational. God eternally is relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I guarantee you, this is going to be all about relationship from now on. Now and forevermore, relationship is going to play giant. Because that's who God is. It's what it's all about. It's how Jesus defines eternal life. This is eternal life in John 17. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You think, this is eternal life that you live on forever. This is eternal life that you never die. No. Eternal life is who you know. Right? Eternal life is the knowledge of God, intimacy with God. And so many forms of evangelism seem to focus, do you want eternal life? I'm going to tell you how you can get eternal life, which is fine as far as it goes. As long as it's understood, do you want God? I mean, do you want to have God? Do, do you know that you're made in his image and Do you know that you're estranged from him and that he's come after you and wants to restore you to himself and that he would he would commune with you for the rest of your life and and forever and and that he would sweeten your life in so many ways to conform you to his goodness. I love what old writers would say that heaven will be without Christ. I said heaven would be a veil of tears. It's wonderful. You think. And sometimes we really think about heaven and all we want to get there and all the people that will be there. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, it's Jesus, too. That, that's good, that's good, yeah. And they're like, you can't even talk, you can't even use the word heaven if Christ isn't there. It's whole. Anyway, just think, this magnificent God who made all that we enjoy, like, I, 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 I want so badly as I saw one guy get to do, to hold on to the fluke of a whale, you know, his fin, and just ride for 300 feet. I would love to do that. It'd be so cool. (laughs) Maybe in the new heavens and the new earth, maybe we'll get to do it all the time. Who knows? But I tell you, this is even more exciting, to know the God that made that whale, right? To know the God that made the tiger, that made the storm, that made Saturn, The God that made the human cell and its intricacy. 
what if that glory, and it is, these are just tastes of getting to know him. And then this God of love that we see dimly because of our sin in Christ, what if that abundant love is just opened up and we're swallowed up in it? What would that be? What would that be? That's what God is into. He's in relationship. He redeems us as our kinsman redeemer to have us for himself, to slake us and refresh us forever in himself. That's why David can say at the end of Psalm 16, there are pleasures at your right hand forever. (laughs) And of course, we can't really talk about the last one out of time, but the inheritance, right? The inheritance of the land he speaks of here in verse 8. And in the New Testament, we, we realize that the inheritance of the land was just a preview of the ultimate salvation and inheritance that we will inherit the earth. The meat will inherit the earth. And you even see in Romans 4, when he's talking about Abraham, Paul says Abraham was made an heir of the world, not just the land. So it was understood that this this promise of the land had, was embedded in it, the giant promise that we would inherit the earth, that the new heavens and the new earth will be created and we will populate that earth and love each other and dwell there forever as we produce the magnificent culture that God wants us to do forever. Okay, so there you go. So we're told things like this in 1 Corinthians 3, um, where they're arguing, I, I belong to Paul. No, I belong to Cephas. Oh, I like Apollos, you know. And he says, look, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, you have all of them. He says, you have the whole world. You have life or death or the present or the future. Everything is yours. So it follows that if he redeems you as the redeemer kinsman, as he has this relationship with you, he's going to unload everything for you and for me. And if you're apart from Christ, this is how God comes to you. He comes to you and he says, I will deliver you. I, I will deliver you from the guilt of sin, from the fear of judgment. I'll deliver you from having to have a, a conscience that's tortured. I'll deliver you from the, the habits and practices of your life that are destructive or hurt other people. I'll deliver you and start conforming you to a new life of self-giving, a life of beauty. I will deliver you into a fellowship of people that are beginning to love like that. I will be related to you. I will be intimate with you. I'll cause all things to work together for your ultimate good. And I will give you an inheritance. It's good news. You know, when you you come to uh, your kids and say, Kids, I have the most wonderful, wonderful news for you. You know, they're just like, what is it? What is it? What is it? You're going to get to rake the yard. (laughs) No, it would be something like Disney World where the Moors just went, right? Just to start the word Disney. (gasps) You know, crazy. Isn't it amazing? God says, tell everybody about this good news. The good news of a God. Yahweh, who redeems, with whom you can have a relationship, who will give you an inheritance. This is this God. 
And I pray that you will not be like the Israelites and due to whatever suffering you've been through, whatever pain, whatever abuse perhaps, whatever mistreatment, whatever series of things that maybe have lasted for years that would make you push away these promises and say, no, I'm just not going to believe them. I just can't. I just can't believe it. That, that was their condition. They were so beaten down. It, it was just like a mirage to them, something not real. And I pray that the truth, the reality of God's goodness would break through to your heart. And you would entrust yourself to him and say, oh, Lord Jesus, I take you. I take you. I rest myself in your salvation. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you that you have revealed yourself as Yahweh, the God who delivers, the God who is intimate, the God who gives everlasting riches for your people, not made up, but real and true and solid, that will never fail, never fade. We thank you, Lord, that you give yourself. That's the whole point. You give yourself to us. You take us for yourself. Thank you that we can have this intimate relationship with you. Thank you that you attend us. Thank you that you enrich us with yourself and nothing will change. Whatever happens to us, whatever happens around us, nothing will change that you will enrich your people with yourself. Oh Lord, teach us how to, how to walk in your promise and believe you for Jesus' sake. Amen.